The college kid, Kelly Green, stopped by and pitched to Clyde out of the blue and said, look, I'm doing this project. Your hill faces due north lowest solar radiation. It's got a great slope. This is a prime location for building a ski area. I don't know how he did on his college project, but something certainly slipped into the conscious, like a splinter in his mind, and he couldn't let it go and tried it with a rope toe going up halfway that first winter. And every year after that, the Perfect Family has been fantastic about their reinvestment. And man, are they hard workers. They would not let it fail. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to the lower Midwest today, and my first podcast in Indiana, very unique ski state. Before we go there, I will ask you to visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the storm skiing newsletter. That is the heart of this whole operation. The podcast is great, but it is just a small part of the storm and you will find tons of commentary and analysis on lift surf skiing all year long. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. You know what else you should do? Subscribe to Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Mountain Gazette 197 is now shipping to subscribers, featuring an iconic cover shot by Academy Award winner Jimmy Chin. Mountain Gazette 197 is the biggest issue of the magazine ever at 140 pages. Inside, you will find John Fahey's true crime Aspen Outlaw story decades in the making, Ari Schneider's carefully reported piece on the fraught world of outdoor social media influencers, former bike editor Joe Parkin's love letter to two wheels, backcountry clashes in Teton National Park, stunning art and photography, and there is even a tear-out poster. The biggest issue of the biggest outdoor magazine ever. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 93, Jonathan Davis, General Manager of Perfect North Indiana. A couple years back, Chip Perfect, the owner of Perfect North Indiana, bought Timberline, a defunct ski area in West Virginia. He tore out the lifts, dropped in a high-speed six-pack and a new quad, and got that thing moving again. This was a really cool story, but dig down a layer and it reveals some things that may surprise you. Not only did a ski area operator from Indiana have the confidence and the know-how to buy a ski area in a vastly different climate and market, but he had the cash to invest heavily into it out of the gate. How was this possible? Well, Perfect North, as it turns out, is one of the slickest ski area operations in America. It operates in an extremely difficult climate, in an area without much natural snow. Still, Perfect North completely schooled the Mighty Vale Resorts this past season, spinning its lifts 89 hours per week as Vale struggled to staff up and operated its Paoli Peak ski area in Indiana only 28 hours, only four days per week. Decades of doing that is how Perfect North was able to bring Timberline back online so quickly and so effectively. Perfect North tells the story of the thriving indie in the consolidation era 
as well as any scary in the country. And I wanted to see how they did it. Turns out their story will give you a lot to feel good about as you contemplate the future of independent skiing. Let's go. My guest today has been the general manager at Perfect North Slopes, Indiana since May 2020. Perfect North has 22 trails served by 12 lifts across 100 acres on a 400 foot vertical drop. The ski area was founded in 1980 by the Perfect family and a group of investors. He has worked at Perfect North since 1993 when he started as a lift operator. Jonathan M. Davis is my guest. Jonathan, welcome to the storm. I really appreciate your time today. How are you doing today? Great. My pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for the invite and reaching out. Looking forward to talking skiing, and I love talking about Perfect North Slopes. You know, Jonathan, I just want to start out by saying, wow, you've been at Perfect North for going on three decades. How did you get that first job at Perfect North, and what inspired you to apply there? You know, looking back, it's funny how you how time goes by so quickly. I grew up on the opposite side of the valley where Perfect North exists, and my brother and I would count the number of lights each winter. We were waiting for that first <laughs> night of snowmaking when the lights come on to see how many more there were going to be this winter than the previous one. And as I worked my way through college, I needed some extra money like every college kid does. So in the wintertime, I'd get a part-time job. This was perfect. It was close to home. And uh, I would come over and run lifts for Clyde and uh, would bump chairs into the middle of the night. Back then, we were open until 4 a.m. And Whoa. It, was, uh, it was fun. It was a fun atmosphere. It was something different. It was freezing cold, but <laughs> it just got in my DNA and I, I loved it. So you grew up skiing at Perfect North? I did. My dad uh, would help Clyde Perfect bale some hay, and he worked at a brick job or a brick company. Uh, Clyde Perfect was a mason and would um, before he started the ski area. And that's how I got introduced to skiing at a very young age, although I didn't do it a lot. When I did, I loved it. Even the times I'd fly off the end of the snow and into the hay field. <laughs> um, but yes, about eight years old was when I first eight or nine was when I first uh, started skiing in Indiana. So take us back to that time. What was Perfect North like back in those early days? Because the ski area only opened in 1980. As far as U.S. ski areas go, that's fairly new. So just take us back in time. What, what are your memories like as a child skiing there? Looking back, I remember the hill being tremendously larger than what it seems like today, partly <laughs> because I was a child, but also how intimidating the, the top is. I think that's a, not uncommon for a first-timer's experience. I do remember a lot of beginners, and there were so many people skiing in jeans or uh, layered farm-type mm -hmm. uh, outfits. Uh, but I, re I remember the freedom that skiing provided and being out in the open air, and you'd go as, as a kid as fast as you wanted to. I probably skied a little bit more out of control than I should have. <laughs> but uh, that, that was exhilarating. That's what I recall from my early days. So if you think about a ski area in Indiana, it's, it's such a novelty. It, it's such a fascinating thing as a kid. When I think back on, on how I viewed ski areas, what was it like when you got that first job to actually work at this place that had been this sort of fantasy land for you for so long? 
it does feel like the curtain gets pulled back, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you see some of the inner workings that you had no idea what you hadn't even thought it was. A, it was a passing thought of what made lifts run, how many people it took to work in the rental shop, what it took to make the homemade chili come to life and be available at the end of the day when you wanted a, a bowl. Um, so it was great and eye-opening to see all of the intricacies and how it's a machine, how, how this machine has got so many moving parts and how weather-dependent it is, especially in southeast Indiana, where temperatures can fluctuate wildly just throughout the day. So you know, a peek at the inner workings of the machine. As you said, you were in college, you need some extra money. Here it is almost 30 years later. You're still there, in fact, running the place. What made you stick around? It's it's the people. It always comes down to the people. Uh, the perfect family is such a great family to work for and work with. They've mentored me specifically. Chip Perfect, uh, Clyde's son, has mentored me my entire career. He has he's just got this business prowess and vision like none other that I've met. His, his history speaks for itself with his involvement with the Midwest Skiers Association and the National Skiers Association. But besides that, the people, I, the co-workers were fantastic. And it's the people that come to enjoy snow sports. And then it's this fun environment. There's very few places that I've experienced where the whole purpose of either serving or being served is this fun, family-friendly healthy recreational environment and that's that's really what got me to stick it was also very there were challenges it was, it was there was something different every season was different every week was different heck sometimes every day was different <laughs> it was a different event based on the crowd or the weather or the circumstance but uh as soon as you got sick of whatever whether it was the the number of people you'd head into the off season and it was quiet. As soon as you were done, you were sick of the quiet, the, your winter family came back. And uh, that that's really the, the people is the amazing part about this industry. So what's interesting about Indiana is the ski seasons are very short, you know, 10, 12, 14 weeks, depending upon the year. And 30 years is a long time. And I would imagine that there's a lot of different ways your life could have gone and, and probably some other opportunities that you had. Just take us through this progression. Jonathan, from your first job bumping chairs up to general manager. And and was there a moment when you said, this is my place, I'm going to make a career out of this? Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think if I had not been challenged throughout, I would have been looking, uh, had eyes for something else. And and of course, my awareness of what is happening in the industry at large is, is increasing through time as well. And I'm potential opportunities. But as I worked, so I worked the as a lift operator for three seasons part-time and then came indoors at the request. My brother worked in the rental shop, had built a relationship with the rental shop manager at the, at the request of the rental shop manager wanted somebody to oversee the late night skis. Again, we were, we were open until 4 a.m. on Friday and Saturday nights. And I, looking back at might have been difficult to find people dumb enough. I mean, uh, <laughs> willing enough to uh, do those shifts. So I jumped in and I'm and not uh, opposed to any challenge and started just watching the rental shop at night, working with the, the seasonal people, 
who would close up shop. But as I continued in the rental shop, I'd gain responsibilities, worked myself up to assistant, gen- assistant manager of the rental shop, inherited the ski technician piece. And there was a day in the late 90s, 98-ish, there, were, there was trouble with the webcam. This is, you know, the internet at home, AOL. I can still hear the dialogue sound. Um, right. Not every, people were afraid of, of, inf- of technology. And I, I wasn't, I didn't know a whole lot about it, but I certainly wasn't afraid of it. So I fixed a couple things or I helped navigate through getting the webcam back online. And then it was a couple things with the networking and the running cables and connecting the server. And before I knew it, um, I was invited into the realm of IT and run the point of sale system and managing and managing that. And there was this nice blend of spending a lot of time in the rental shop, a little time of IT, and I would slowly release rental shop responsibilities to other people and increase my responsibilities with the point of sale ownership and which introduced my me into the, the office and administration piece. And over time, um, worked into a role that was invited to the table as an executive team member. We have Chip as a president and GM at the time, and he had three or four executive team members that would advise him on policy decisions. And uh, from that until May of 2020, when he asked me to be the general manager, just continued to say yes where I could, uh, say no where I knew I was not talented or gifted, and did whatever I could to help the cause. That's a really interesting background. General managers come from all kinds of places. They can come from operations or the resort side. Your background in particular on the technology side is really interesting because I I think we're seeing, and this was accelerated certainly by COVID, but this industry-wide shift into technology and a, a better comprehension of the importance of meeting consumers where they are, right? Because our whole lives are online now and, and skiing has been this very analog thing until until recently. So how does that philosophy guide you as you look to set Perfect North up to the future and you consider things like uh, online commerce and RFID and all these other ways that you can streamline, say, the rental shop uh, or, or the, the, I guess, parking lot to lift experience? How much have you considered that or already incorporated some of that into Perfect North's operations? I think that there's something to be said that's probably trite by now, but Wayne Gretzky is is cited as saying, um, giving the advice of playing where the puck is going to be. And Mm -hmm. that has resonated with me for many years. I believe Chip helped, uh, helps concrete that into my philosophy. And I, and we want to be on the leading edge, but he is also, cautioned us about being on the bleeding edge because there is a place where you can be too far out in front of yourself trying to develop or navigate technologies or processes or it could be a a multitude of things that um you end up taking a different fork in the road before you even arriving at the destination you're planning so balancing the leading edge and the bleeding edge has been interesting but uh, I think that generally speaking, the ski industry has been lacking in the technology um, awareness or eff- effectiveness or um, or capitalizing on the efficiencies that it offers. And I'm not sure if it's because there's uh, 
it's it's not for lack of need it might be lack of champions or lack of empowerment I, and I, and I believe that Chip had the philosophy that this is something that we have to embrace so that we're not left behind or we're left catching up. That Mark Daneman was the uh, owner or president and CEO of Searsware Point of Sale, and he had uh, cautioned us and the industry at large against accumulating too much technical debt. Because as time goes on and we don't make changes, whether it's maintaining our system or keeping them up to date by, you know, a rip and replace in any area, that could be snowmaking, that, that certainly applies to lifts, uh, anything indoors with our point of sale and our CRM systems. Uh, we, we accumulate technical debt over time, like it or not, and it'll catch up and there will be a day to pay the piper. So I think it's in our best interest to stay on top of it. And that's the philosophy we've, we've had in regards to technology. So where are you at with online e-commerce and, and RFID and, and those other sort of opportunity areas for technology? Where is Perfect North today? Well, we've, we embraced um, e-commerce as early as we could. I remember back to 1999, we could not get a high-speed uh, connection here to in order to serve our webcam. So we built a cell phone tower large enough to rent the space out to pay for it, but also nice. to give us the ability to have a high-speed dedicated line to a company in town that would provide that fiber service to us. And we've maintained that for over 20 years now. Um, so e-commerce was on the on our radar 1999, 2000, and we've continued to develop it. We've, we're leaning into and looking at uh, furthering where exactly what you said, meeting guests where they expect to be because of their other in you know live world experiences, whether that's at the airport or the grocery store or the fast food restaurant. Um, it's important that the experience here is not uh, it can be different and unique. It's important for it to be different and unique, but it can't be so dissimilar that it draws attention to uh, where where we might be lacking. So we lean heavily into e-commerce. Uh, we we have, looking back at the last year, I, we're just over 50% of our tickets are sold online now, which I think is a win, but I think we do have a ways to go because I think that that average is lagging the general uh, e-commerce trends in America. And do you think that that's because of your particular demographic in Indiana, where there are folks who don't necessarily have a lot of options of where else to ski, so they're not familiar with the other things going on out there, or or is it something else? No, I don't know that it's a demographics because we have a pretty wide reach. So there's not too many ski areas uh, in our region, and we pull from over 100 miles of big metropolitan areas of Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Lexington, Louisville, Dayton. It could just be the culture that we have built and what they've gotten used to, because there is an element of training. I hate to use that word, training your guests to, to go to jump through the hoops in your processes, but they get used to your way, the way that you've built. And that's why it's important to put a lot of thought behind that, because as much as you want to train them on a certain, on a certain path, when you, if and when, really when you change that path, you'll have to train them, they'll have to learn a brand new path of doing business or e-commerce or in interfacing with you. 
Where where do you come out on RFID? I know the Midwest is Wicket Ticket Central, and I I actually love metal Wicket tickets. I love going back and skiing in Michigan because right. I get a metal Wicket ticket every day I go out, and it's a nice little collectible for me. But uh, are you still using Wicket tickets? Are you thinking about RFID? Where's Perfect North at on that? I miss the Wicket tickets too because the rental shop people could build these intricate little sculptures <laughs> out of Wickets in their free to all the free time that they had, right? Yeah, uh, and now they're just relegated to golf pencils, <laughs> right? But uh, no, we switched. We still have paper tickets. They're no longer the sticky wicked tickets, which I am very fond of as well. Um, and I have some in my for my in my scrapbook, if you will, to share with my kids as they get older. But we have the uh, paper tickets with the zip tie uh, connections. Um, in terms of RFID, we're Oh, we're looking at that so hard. And I, and I think we've been on the precipice of making a decision to jumping in several times in the last couple of years, because there's a strong case for it. Uh, the, what is, what has um, given us some pause is the physical geography of our area and how close I wish we had built our lodge a hundred foot further back from where the base of the lifts are 40 years ago. But um, I, th- I think those aren't challenges we can't overcome. And we are, I know we're going to hopefully talk about Timberline a little bit, but we uh, are connected to Timberline in Mountain in West Virginia, and that is a sandbox for us. And we put RFID gates in from the jump out there. We're learning a lot about those processes through them. Oh, nice. Let me ask you an off-the-wall question here because sure. I've always been curious about this. I love the metal sticky wicket tickets. I'm not as fond of the uh, of the zip tie version because the way they like kind of flap around and and if you get a bundle of them they they just look yeah. insane. So what what why did you switch? What is it just a cost thing? Is it convenience? Like what what made you switch from the metal to the zip ties? I don't know that it was cost. I think it was garbage. When okay. at the lift ticket windows, we could not get our guests enough of them to take the paper backing off the sticky ticket and, st- and stick it in the garbage can. We've had 12 wow. garbage cans outside. So these paper backs of the tickets would be all over the ground and just everywhere, oh. especially outside where the wind could carry them. And it looked, it looked trashy. So that was, I, that was a primary driver in switching. Um, yeah, there's, I don't know that the paper tickets are perfect, but they've come a long way. We've te- we used to test them. We'd hook them to a, a handle on our file cabinet in the office and pull them to see how easily they'd rip. And I remember that a batch several years ago, we pulled on it and ripped the handle of the file cabinet off. And we stopped wow. testing the integrity of the ticket after that. <laughs> Gosh, that's so interesting. I, I, I always get frustrated with people who can't just find a garbage can. It's not that hard. Right. Uh, so let, let's go back here. May, 2020 chip perfect asked you to be a general manager that was a very interesting time in the world uh, and a very interesting time to take over a ski area as we were still in the midst of a lot of uncertainty. I think no one really knew what the 2020 to 21 ski season was going to look like. It did end up being a boom year, but let's go back to May 2020. What was it like? What was going through your head as you took over Perfect North in that month and you had to try to get the ski area ready for a very unpredictable season? I tell you, that was, I, I can't complain because we're all in the same boat. We all had interesting experiences of how we navigated what March 2020 gave us, like it or not. We had just 
went through a process of purchasing a ski area. This has never been done in the history of the, of, the, of perfect north slopes before. Purchasing another, diversifying geographically in November of 2019, and winding up all of the pieces that it would take to bring that ski area online in the fall of 2020, and then March hits where you know the, the world goes crazy and there's toilet paper shortages and um, we can't drive around and it's insane. So um, as the assistant GM, I think Chip was doing some searching in the path forward and how we were going to manage both ski areas, how we were going to bring the other one online, particularly was front of mind. Um, and don't, and I don't want to get, don't get me wrong. I, I may have the role of GM, but that doesn't mean he took his hands off the wheel. He's president of Perving Our Slopes and the CEO of Timberline Mountain is very engaged with vision and keeps his, his finger on the pulse. But this freed him up, this move to install me as the general manager, freed him up uh, from the day-to-day -day operations so that he could have a more global look of the path that we were now on. And I think that that, but COVID was a catalyst to move that along. Uh, that would have been a natural progression. I'd like to have, to think that. I would have been able to free him up in that way and give him some more quality of life. Um, but that's really, I think those two things in concert are what uh, gave him the idea to pull a trigger and, and assign me as general manager. So how did you approach that summer? I I know the NSAA, the National Skiers Association, was helping out quite a bit and put out some guidelines around masking and social distancing that could give all ski areas a baseline to operate from. But from your point of view, how were you approaching preparing for the 2020 to 21 ski season? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, <laughs> I'm optimistic to a fault. Really, if it if the forecast tomorrow says it's going to rain, I'm, I would be optimistic to the point to think that it might possibly turn around and we might get some freezing temperatures to make that a snow event. But um, I, it was super challenging, and I and I didn't discount that. But I think being optimistic about the future and with that knowing that we were going to stick together as an industry was tremendously impactful on taking a lot of the removing the layers of fear because so many people were making decisions in fear and we sat down uh together as a team and i talked with them and said we are not going to make decisions out of fear we know who we are we know what we're capable of we have provided skiing in southeast indiana for 40 years so this this could be a this is a bump whether it's a big bump or a little bump i don't know It'll, time will tell until we get through it but I had no doubt that we were going to get through the ski season because we were together. We have a really strong team and it felt like we were groomed for a moment like that. So we went through the summer with a, a if you will, a faith over fear type of approach, but being realistic, not, not discarding the real, real challenges that lied ahead. So how did that ski season go for you? <laughs> um, I, there's, I laugh because there's a lot of our staff that still have some PTSD from <laughs> that ski season. We, okay. um, there was a lot of uncertainty going into it. I, we held employee trainings outside. Uh, we didn't know how masking was going to go. Um, and we changed 
what we did and what we said and what our policies were to accommodate the 98% of the people who wanted to come out and have fun. There were fringe at the very beginning, fringe 1% that were doing too much in terms of uh, response to COVID, a 1% that said we were doing too little. Uh, for the most part, we, so many, so many changes and, and inherently people don't like change, but so many things had to change. We embraced it and we provided quality experiences day after day after day. And I think that our confidence grew through the end of the year that we can do this. We can make it to an 80, 85, 90 day season, which is typical for, for us. It was the first Saturday in January when we had a line of cars out our driveway and onto the highway that we had no parking for and our eyes were open like wow this 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 level of activity has occurred before usually up in a perfect storm of a lot of snowfall on a holiday weekend and now we're faced with it right right out of the barrel so um the ski season was overwhelmingly uh, successful and our number one in uh, visits and revenue head and shoulders above everything else but it came at a at a cost of dealing with lines and some other challenges we had never seen before on top of the covid response so it's interesting you mentioned that one percent on either end how what percentage of the headaches and stress and disruptions would you say that that two percent of folks caused well, there's. I've heard the Pareto principle of eighty twenty, where you spend eighty percent of your time on twenty percent of the issues and twenty percent of your time on eighty percent of the issues. I, it was a, it was a moment like that. I um, we would get emails and phone calls and a few people at the window face to face, and 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 our staff, both the full time and seasonals, were just beat up by some of that. And I I found that if you um, we're all, we're all just human. And I think there's a general human decency at play at, at our cores. And if you have a one-on-one -on -one talk with someone and just appeal to their humanity, uh, instead of like through a social media post or, or trying to play tennis of who's right in an email, um, that you can come to a greater understanding quicker. So I tried to run into fires like that to protect where I could uh, from our staff from from taking that, and I and I found that ninety percent of the time reason rules the day, and we could talk our way through whatever issue or misunderstanding there was. But it did. It, there was a lot of sideways energy spent towards addressing those those issues. And how did that carry over? into the 2021 to 22 ski season on, on a couple of different levels. I mean, number one is it seems as though we just recorded, according to the National Skiers Association, a record number of skier visits in a season. So in general, there were more skiers across the country. So did your business keep up, A? And, and B, did the temperature come down with the easing of restrictions? Were the Was the guest employee interaction a little bit better. I, I guess in general, how, how did those things go for your 2021 to 22 ski season? Yeah, 2021, 20, 22 felt more normal. Uh, the, the very beginning, I think there was a cautious optimism that 
we could have a chance at normalcy. But once we got a few weeks under our, our belt and we had a challenging Christmas week, holiday week, um, after we got through that, I think everybody looked around and realized that we were back on the path that we had been prior to COVID, at least here in Southeast Indiana. So there was a lot of, a lot of things returned to normal, although the impact of what had changed still lingered. Um, the, the overall tone and attitude of our guests and the interactions was much better. We had no angry emails back and forth, which was a, or social media posts, which was really refreshing, but something we lost something in in those two years with how we interact with people. And I, I lament it and I hope that we can bring that back. I hope we can affect that to bring it back because how people interact in general, uh, there seems to be an air of a greater air of suspicion or um, just a, uh, uncertainty and how someone's going to be accepted or treated um, or perceived. And I, and I hate that, that that is a cloud from the beginning where we, we used to not have that cloud. As a manager and, and you're leading a team and in, in general, I think you have a pretty young staff and, and maybe they don't have as much depth of experience in dealing with people and things and, and being able to let things go in some cases. How, how do you guide them, Jonathan? How do you, how do you help them empathize with the guests, but while still retaining their own dignity and doing it in a constructive way that's not disruptive to business? Because that, that's a lot to ask of a 16-year-old, right? So, so how, do you, how do you guide your team in this changing and uncertain world that we all find ourselves in? Oh, that's a great question. And I don't know that I do it well. There's a lot of people that that do it well. I try. Um, I, I I like to think that it's a uh, a trickle down type of of effect where it's really important for me to interact with the full time staff on a on an empathetic level and it takes a lot of grace and more time and not because of the people just because it you can't rush through processes like that. You, you you've got to. Um, there's a holistic approach that the people who are coming to work together as a team are uh, have lives outside of here. And there are things outside of work that affect inside of work. And I think that there's a, there's a weird interplay that you have to do the dance of when somebody has, is having a rough time at home or a rough time with finances or has made bad life choices and they have got to look, work through learning through those. Um, there's opportunities to, to sharpen iron against each other so that we can both be better individually and professionally. And I think if they take that approach and they look at the staff that they're managing uh, in a very similar way, and we have, uh, we have 1200 seasonal employees and another 250 volunteer ski patroller. And um, most about 55% are minors for our seasonal staff. So for a lot, it's their first job. And we recognize that and we welcome it and embrace it. So we manage in a way that's very intentional to um, leave room for mistakes, that failure is only true failure if that's the place that you end up and you don't move on from. And there's a lot of learning from making a mistake or failing. 
as long as you fail forward. So with that mentality in mind, and we try to sharpen our seasonal staff with, with that, we have really great retention. Uh, about 65% of our staff comes back every season. And I think that's a testament to how it's not, not what I'm doing. It's what our, it's what our managers are doing, how they're building into their, their, their staff and creating true teams and, and not um, siloing the individual that they really get this, they really get that dialed in well. Uh, My goodness, 1,200, is that what you said? Yeah, 1,200 is how many we had onboarded last season. That is an incredible number. I, I think that if you look at resorts many times your size, they're running an equal number of staff. So I, I think that's instructive for folks listening from all over the country who may not be familiar with Midwest skiing. Just take us into this for a moment and try to help people understand the kind of volume that you're dealing with as a small ski area in a pretty populated region, a pretty populated state, and pretty much the only game in town. You don't have any other ski areas for, for over an hour in either direction. So help us understand the kind of volume that you're dealing with where it requires that big of a staff for a hill that's not that big. Yeah, well, I think it's location, location, location. Just like real estate, we're proximate to to these major metropolitan areas, which also benefits us in terms of the uh, availability of seasonal staff. And I realize I, f- I feel guilty sometimes talking about how we work with our staffing and the, the challenges but successes we have, because I know that, that staffing is such a, a great challenge across the industry. Um, they, they're accessible, they're ready to work. We are the employer of choice in, in our county, if not a multi-county region. And I think it's because of the fun atmosphere some of the perks that we allow our staff, but also the way that I just talked about the culture that we've, that we're building, but it is challenging because we're a seasonal business and we're not, we don't have, we don't have any to speak of summer activities. We're bringing on these 1200 people in a window of there's three or four weeks. It could be the week before Thanksgiving. It could be the week before Christmas. We don't know when that's going to happen. So to, to interview in, train and onboard all of those people is quite <laughs> quite intensive every every fall that is i'm still trying to wrap my head around those numbers that is just amazing jonathan so let's talk about staffing a little bit more because staffing was tough throughout the industry this past ski season and particularly in the lower midwest which is now dominated by vale resorts that company cited staffing challenges for its operational struggles this year. So you have Vail Resorts on either side. If you have Paley Peaks, which is about two hours and 40 minutes to your southwest, and then to your east, you have Mad River. That's about two hours away. And Vail cut hours severely at both of those ski areas this past season. Paley Peaks was only open 28 hours a week from 1 to 8 Thursday and Friday, and from 11 to 6 on Saturday and Sunday. Mad River was only open 44 hours a week, 3 to 9 Monday through Friday, 10 to 5 Saturday and Sunday. Meanwhile, you managed to run a normal ski season. You were open 12 hours a day, 14 and a half hours per day on Friday and Saturday. That's a total of 89 hours per week. So that's more than both of those other ski areas put together. And actually almost tops in the country as far as number of hours open. How were you able to run 
Perfect North on a normal schedule, despite you, you said you had a, a tough Christmas week. So I know you were facing the same weather challenges that Vale was. Despite the weather, despite these industry-wide labor challenges, how were you able to step up and, and offer the 89 hours a week that you always do? I think it's, I, I look back and lend it to the culture that we've built, uh, the do whatever it takes attitude. And when we have to take extra time to massage relationships with the, with the seasonal staff, we've, we've done that so that we have a healthy environment. I don't want to, I'm not saying anything negative about how um, Mad River or Paley had ran their staff because I'm, I'm unaware of, of that, but uh, I know that, that it's, it's really the relationships that we build. I mean, we see that with our guests too, but focusing on the staff issue, they they do not come to work and will work in the sub-freezing temperatures past midnight uh, because it's fun, because it's not always fun, but they will do it because of a, of a healthy culture. And there were several times this past winter when we're trying, we have the curse of knowledge from what had happened in the season prior, the COVID season of 2021, and the and the insane crowds that we had that overwhelmed us, frankly, uh, and how we managed through that this past season, there were some we had the trigger ready and had pre-planned, but there were two or three weekends where we decided to open early, uh, an extra hour for just to get as people in earlier, they get out earlier, and it gives the the cadence and flow. Um, just makes for a better day for everyone. And our seasonal staff just championed that and they rallied behind the vast high school kids to come in an extra hour early on a Saturday. It was kind of unplanned, <laughs> is was was daunting, but they, they rallied and they did it. And when when you have, we basically have three shifts of people a day, a morning shift, an afternoon, evening shift, and a shift that runs till midnight on Friday and Saturday. They all click together and, and really... And really pulled it off. I, I think that the advantage that you had was this deep, ingrained native understanding of the Midwest skier and Midwest culture. And I'm from the Midwest myself. I grew up in Michigan. And I don't think that Vale has wrapped their heads around the Midwest yet. I know they've been here for a while. They bought Brighton up in Michigan and uh, Afton Alps in Minnesota and Wilmot, Wisconsin a while ago. But the lower Midwest. I really, frankly, feel like they blew it this year and they weren't appreciating what matters to the Midwest. And one of the things that matters is night skiing. And those schedules I just cited, they had cut out, Vail had cut out night skiing at not only the two resorts I mentioned, but also at Boston Mills Brandywine and Alpine Valley up in Ohio. So all five ski areas that they own in Indiana and Ohio had extremely truncated schedules this year. The only other lower Midwest ski area that operated normally was snow trails. And I interviewed the general manager, Scott Chrislip, on this podcast earlier this month. Yeah. And yeah, he, he was he was excellent. And um, and and again, they were open normal 80 some hours a week. And I'll ask you the same question that I asked him, which was essentially what Vale did was they sold Epic Passes. And then after the Epic Passes were sold, they said, oh, sorry, we can't staff up. We can't find people. We're only going to be open X amount of days, X amount of hours per week, which historically all of the scares in the lower Midwest had run similar schedules to what you do. Probably not open till 4 a.m., but, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week offering night skiing. What would have happened at Perfect North 
if you had sold season passes and then said after the fact in December, oh, sorry, we can't find enough people. We're not going to do night skiing. We're not going to be open Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're just going to be open 28 hours a week. Deal with it. Mm, we'd have an absolute mutiny. 20% of our passes are to school clubs that come Monday through Thursday after school. Actually, Monday through Friday. We, we separate Friday for the folks who have further to drive. Uh, like from Indianapolis and Louisville and Lexington. Um, the, all We would have had to, I can't even imagine. I think to do the right thing, we would have been refunding passes. And I know that's unheard of in the industry, but if you can't provide a service for a product that you've sold, I think a refund is the right thing to do. Uh, there's creative ways around that when when it when it comes down to brass tacks to try to avoid it. Of course, that's not your first card you play, but um, 80% of our weekday visits were after five o'clock, uh, Monday through Thursday. Um, and I, I just can't imagine what we would have on our hands, especially with the limited hours, knowing that expanded hours helps spread crowds out more. Limited hours would have compacted. There's a lot of people that have X number of visits in them per winter, per season. Um, same thing with amusement or water parks. And they, they know they're going to go one or two or three times. And those, I think, with, with shorter seasons or limited hours, a lot of those visits happen at the, those compact times. Um, and, and honestly, <clears throat> I don't want to say anything negative about Vail, but anything that, that falls short, I, you know, if, if we had been in a similar situation where we couldn't, in the past, we hadn't been able to get the labor and we couldn't provide, I would take full responsibility for that. And I think that it falls to the leadership. You know, you give your successes, all the successes we have are because of our team at the front lines. And I think all the failures, uh, fall squarely at the top and that's across the board of any organization and there's people that might not like to hear that but that's that's where if if i don't like the issue blame but if you want to look for um, cause and effect i would look at the top and work your way down because it, it does it is a, a people game and if it's about getting or retaining people and you can't do it at one level look one level up to see where the problem lies I think that there were two fundamental failures on Vale's part. The first was not appreciating the importance of night skiing. I think the second was not appreciating how aggressive you have to be with snowmaking in the lower Midwest. And Scott Chrislet made the point. He said, after November 1st, anytime we get a window, we're making snow. And my mountain ops manager doesn't like it. But we have to, because if you don't farm that snow, you never know when you're going to get the next window. So uh, how do you approach snowmaking and how aggressive are you to make sure that you can open at least at some point in December? Yeah, Scott's exactly right. That's a philosophy we have, too. You have to balance that with a with looking out a couple of weeks. If you get a short, very short, cold window and you can see two weeks out that you're heading into a really warm period and you're going to lose it, then we would likely err on the side of not making snow. I don't, we, we don't make snow just for the PR effect because our, I think our guests, we're, we're not trying to fake it. Like when we make snow, we're, we're actively looking to accumulate what, what we're, what we're making. But yeah, November is, is go time and we have to be ready because it's happened seven times in our history that we've been open in November and we don't know if, 
November of 22 is going to be one of those, but we've got to have our systems in place ready to do it. And there have been several seasons, especially in the last decade, that early snowmaking has saved our tails. That has been what has made made or broken the Christmas holiday week. And had we not made the snow when we did, um, we would have sat on the sidelines and and uh, watched all those those visits go by. So you you have this down. You've done it for a long time, 40 some years. And we'll talk about the history of Perfect North in a moment here. But I'm sure that even though they're far away, I'm sure it's in your best interest to have a healthy lowered Midwest ski industry, to have a healthy Paoli Peaks, to have a healthy Mad River and, you know, just have that strong culture. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to Vale? Because they've only owned those ski areas since 2019, right? So they've gone through three seasons. And to be fair, they've all been pretty disrupted by COVID, right? So looking back at those two things that we just discussed, night skiing and snowmaking and anything else that you want to add that's elemental, how what advice would you give to Vale to, to help them thrive in Indiana and Ohio and Missouri, as a matter of fact, as well into the future? Yeah, great, great question. Um, a lean into your people. That, that leadership it can't be underestimated in these in these seasonal biz type businesses. Uh, B snowmaking is absolutely essential. If we don't have snow, we have no products. We have no services to offer. Um, I know that that's challenging. I'm I'm aware that there, depending on the area of the country, the electric uh, setup is can be more challenging than others, but that's still front front of mind. And that's where technology going back to technology look, I would say, look for technology solutions to help overcome uh, all of the, for every challenge, there's a solution. And sometimes it's out of reach because of dollars or just practicality, but there's got to be ways to continue to move forward because you're absolutely right. We don't view Paoli or Mad River or snow trails as competitors. I mean, where they're so they're far enough away and I would hate to see them fail because there's such a uh the people of the Midwest are are fiercely loyal to whatever cause or product or service and skiing is one of those skiing and snowboarding and snow tubing for that matter we have diehard snow tubers that come back year after year that might not even consider the the other two sports but um because we have this loyalty, it's so. I think it's so important to the ski industry at large to continue to lean into the beginner factories that we have. And there's certainly a lot of great. We need to have a pipeline for someone to go from beginner to Olympic athlete, like like we did with Nick Gepper and Justin Schoenfeld from Perfect North Slopes. But um, some people are happy staying at the beginner or lower intermediate levels, and we've got to provide those services to them. I would, I would also say to them if they can't do it, uh, give us a shot. Like, hey, uh, let's let's talk about. Um, we'll we'll take them uh, if they if they don't want Paoli and Mad River Mountain, then we would love to work on providing those. And maybe maybe that's gone too far, but but seriously, we care that much about the ski industry, and I know that they do too. But there is there are ways to do it. We're we're making it happen here. Uh, it's happening up in Mansfield, Ohio. Um, it's very important to the industry that these areas succeed. Yeah. And to be frank with you, Jonathan, I am very surprised at 
how poorly Vail performed in the lower Midwest this past season. I am really of the opinion that anywhere Vail operates, they ought to be the best. And I say that all the time. What was your reaction in 2019 when Vail bought Peak Resorts and landed in the Midwest in a, in a very, with a very big footprint, very abruptly? How did you react to that? There were, um, there were a few that instantly thought that the sky was falling, that they were going to rob thousands of skiers from us and we were going to struggle. Um, I didn't, that wasn't my initial reaction for two, two reasons. One, we, we are still throttling skier visits here with our group program and corporate program. We minimally advertise and get the word out because of, uh, we're blessed with success. And if they were to bleed off some of our skiers from the region and make the industry stronger, fantastic. We fish are jumping into our boat so we can go fishing a little bit to stay afloat and not just stay afloat, but do better. Uh, number two, after it settled in, um, I came to the realization that this could be the best thing for the Midwest that's happened in of decades with their arrival and um, we really embraced it and I had high hopes of what they were going to do to turn these areas around that from the outside looking in had some deferred maintenance not unlike a lot of other Midwest ski areas that just have it's it can be a struggle uh, to to keep up with the infrastructure you have and if they if they reinvested money into those areas and grew them and grew their skier bases and Vail was known for their marketing efforts. And if they could just lift the awareness of snow sports and the fun, family-friendly friendly relationship, uh, recreation that is available, that would benefit us indirectly. If they put that into the Louisville-Evansville market by Paoli and the Columbus-Dayton market over by Mad River, uh, we stood to gain by people getting excited about skiing. Uh, to a higher level. And unfortunately, that just, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And uh, we've we've actually seen people fleeing Paoli and Mad River to come down to us, which is not something we, well, I don't welcome that. I want them to stay at their home mountains. And I mean, I would love, we love the visits, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but um, I, I want Midwest skiing to be successful broadly and not end up concentrated into a few small areas 20 years from now. Yeah. If you, and I don't think you need a lot of help because you're really the only game in town in Cincinnati. And even though this is a, an Indiana ski area, if you look at the map, I'm saying this for the benefit of the listeners, you're right over the border from Cincinnati. Talk about Cincinnati as a, as a ski town, as a ski market and the passion that folks have for skiing there. The ones who, um, who are passionate and, and like I said, fiercely loyal, you will see them all over the country throughout the winter skiing in uh, Pacific Northwest and the Rockies and Utah and the Northeast. They, they, they take their passion and this, they, this is their home base. And they're very proud of it. Um, but they take their passion out everywhere. I don't know, you know, with the statistics we see from national, I don't, I just don't know that we're, creating this the identity in skiers and snowboarders like we could so cincinnati doesn't identify itself as a as a ski town or at least you wouldn't i don't know that if you ask that question to someone on the street uh, i'd love for it to become one 
but frankly, we have, we have to, we're walking the balance of, of getting a lot of people excited. And then we have limited capacity, frankly, on a 400 foot hill, we have in five chairlifts, we have limited places for them to go when they have time to, to go. So, um, yeah, that that's going to be a fun. I think the entire industry is like that. Somebody at National said we're going through a at the national convention this year. I think put it really well. We're we are uh, walking a uh, through an identity crisis in the industry because we want to keep skiing affordable and available to everyone, which I firmly believe in. But at the same time, we're dealing with capacity issues in the places that are successful and the uh, optics of what that looks like. And those are two op opposing forces. But um, yeah, we're, we're working on Cincinnati. They're, they're, uh, they love their, their chili, their uh, ice cream, their reds and their Bengals. And hopefully one day they'll, they'll associate themselves as skiers and snowboarders too. Well, they're very fortunate in Cincinnati that if they want to ski, they have a ski area right there. And that always wasn't necessarily the case. So Perfect North, as I mentioned, is relatively new ski area by American standards. It was founded in 1980. So take us back to that time. Tell us about the founding of Perfect North. And actually, curious, you said you started there at eight years old. If you remember it opening uh, or, or if it's always just sort of been a fact of life for you. Uh, I remember I was six when it opened. Um and they, they, uh, the lights again, growing up on the opposite side of the valley, it was something new and exciting to see something lit up in the winter time, and the reflection of the snow. And I also recall at a very early age that during the late night, like I said, we used to ski until four a.m. In fact, I think it's later than that. Prior, I think it went, the the all night ski got its name because literally. They would people would ski all night, take a break for an hour for grooming in the morning, and go right back at it. And it slowly dialed its way back. We're currently at midnight, but um, I would recall that the music was so loud from the speakers outside that we could hear it from my house, and you could hear people every once in a while. The sound would just carry of the laughter, the giggles, the screams, the the thrill of of skiing. Um, yeah, that was that was quite the quite the memory of it and it's slowly expanding uh every every winter as i was a kid i was watching that that expand but yeah so there was a college kid kelly green you had said this was formed by the perfect family and a group of investors and i just want to clarify it was solely the perfect family that uh that started this because a, a college kid named kelly green stopped by in the summer was it 79 might have been 78 79 and pitched to Clyde. He was just rolled up out of the blue and said, look, I'm doing this project. Your hill faces due north, lowest solar radiation. It's got a great slope. This is a prime location of locations that I've looked for building a ski area, if you want to consider it. I don't know how he did on his college project, but something certainly slipped into the conscious, like a splinter in his mind, and he couldn't let it go and tried it with a rope toe going up halfway uh, that first winter. And every year after that, the, the Perfect Family has been fantastic about their reinvestment. And man, are they hard workers. They, they, would, um, they would not let it fail because in the early 80s, 
while I was a kid, and I don't remember these these circumstances, but the economy was in a terrible space, uh, almost similar to where we are heading to now, but interest rates were super sky high and there were gas shortages and they thrived in a period of time where a lot of other people's failed. And a lot of it was due to their, their grit, their resiliency, and their solid work ethic. They just would not let it fail. So their reinvestment is what carried it every year, every single summer since the inception, they've put money and resources back into the business. And I think that's contributed to their success. So the, the name is really interesting. When I when I learned that the last name of the family that found it was perfect, it made sense. At first, I just thought it was saying, you know, it was just a, a sort of a, a marketing term. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about the origins of the name? <laughs> no, but I would like to think that they didn't have this crack marketing team at their fingertips <laughs> when they said our last name is perfect. Our hill face is due north. Voila. <laughs> so the, the perfect family is, uh, you know, you, you've mentioned several times they're ambitious, they're hardworking. In 2020, Clyde Perfect, the founder of the resort, passed away. Talk about Clyde's legacy and how you remember him. Uh, he, I worked with him, um, clearly not as much as his sonship did and his siblings and a lot of people before me. But I remember him as a very hard worker. Uh, but also very, very human. He could drive you to work the in the hottest of the heat in the summertime, the longest of hours. But when it was time for lunch or a cold drink of water or to take a break, he had he'd pull out a blonde joke and try to relate to you in the ways that he knew how. And he was the most. Uh, uh, he had a lot of ingenuity and didn't. Um, he would not buy things new for the sake of buying them new. If we had the parts to fix it or make it in the back of the farm. And I think that also contributed to the success, that farmer ingenuity of building a, an area with what you had and not not uh, throwing away things that weren't were no longer used. Um, I think his his a lot of people remember him for that that work ethic. But you know, he'd he'd come off as a gruff man a lot of times. But if you stuck around long enough, which didn't take very long, but you stuck around long enough to talk to him and get to know him just a little bit, it's that he, he could be a little a little rough, but he it was the kind of guy that would wink at you at the at the end of the conversation just to let you know that that um he's got a, a heart of gold. That that's it's an interesting that you mentioned that sort of sense of frugality and keeping costs under control. That's, that's a common element I've seen with many family owned ski areas from Platykill in New York to Berkshire East in Massachusetts, where you have these founders who have not founders, but operators who have made the ski area thrive over the decades by keeping that sense of perspective. At the same time, you're in the lower Midwest. It's a challenging environment from a temperature point of view and snowmaking really is crucial, right? And, and you have to continually reinvest in that. So talk about how Clyde set up the ski area for long-term success from a technology point of view and how he balanced that with this sense of not spending more than you have. You know, I think that he would, um, I don't know that I would characterize him as being one to embrace. He didn't, he didn't reject it, but he didn't embrace technology until 
from what I recall, after he was retired and he liked his daily game of solitaire and looking at being able to look at stocks on the internet. But um, I think that he could appreciate that there was value in it and that he didn't, um, he gave the people who worked with it a long enough leash to allow for success, even though it took a period of questionable time to, to get there for in his, in his mind, whether success was guaranteed or not might've been questioned, but he would, um, he would see that he, he retired from day to day in 2002. So that was right at the cusp of, and a lot of things changing quickly at the end of the nineties and the early aughts of technology and that area. And I got it, but I got to say in his retirement, he, um, he was, like a junior it because once he would watch those webcams religiously and if one of them went down i'd know it within minutes and i could i wouldn't i would almost get lax at checking to see if they were functional because i knew if they didn't work he would let me know so he fully appreciated the use um although i don't know that he would have cast the vision for it i think he he allowed and built into his son that business prowess and chip really had uh uh, a knack for being able to see into the future and where the, what the business needed uh, in a lot of areas, tech tech wise, where where Clyde was focused on the physical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess to, to clarify, what I what I how about snowmaking, like the technology of snowmaking, the more efficient snow guns, and sure. and it, yeah. So so going back to 1980, I mean, I don't think that there was ever a period in living memory when you could have run a ski area in Indiana without some kind of snowmaking. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so how did, how did he continue to upgrade that infrastructure as the decades went on? I, I think that leaning into the basics of burying, you know, this is before um, you would have a system engineered and really, I don't, I wouldn't say that our snowmaking system is, but we've gotten, we've done better than gotten by with it, but over time we're upgrading it to what we know now as flow rates and pressures and that kind of thing. He, he would, um, he would get this, he knew what he needed. He'd have to get pipe to deliver air and water. He knew how to get materials up on the hill really easy, but he also knew how important the coverage was. I don't know that there was talk of the windows of cold being large or small back in the eighties or early nineties. I think it was just a given in the winter it was cold, but we're also blessed by, by, the location of this, the ski area being in a valley. And I think that that was front of mind that when it was cold in the region, it was colder here, the cold air Mm. pools. And there's a lot of ski areas that operate or exist because of phenomena, weather phenomena like that. And he leaned into uh, taking advantage of that with, with snowmaking up, always up learning from a either mistakes or B uh, not being satisfied with, where we were at or was the best place to land. So every summer, an, another few snow guns, another run of pipe, another technique for installing such pipes so that it would last longer and not um, not burn up in the ground through electrolysis or other means and um, upgrades to the pump house over time. So he he definitely saw the, the need to stay engaged and ever chasing the better solutions. So the investment is important and the work ethic is important. 
ultimately you have to create a place where people want to be right. So workers and guests. So talk about the culture that Clyde perfect created and that the perfect family has instituted over time and, and how that, how important that has been to the thriving of perfect North. I think Clyde was instrumental in the work ethic. Absolutely. He, um, he showed everyone how important it was to give 110%, um, and to do it relentlessly and we could work our way through any problem. Um, I, I think that he working with his son, Chip, um, and giving Chip the, uh, the freedom to, to work with other business aspects that were not infrastructure based, um, Chip had the vision to complement that piece. So there's, you can, you can work hard, but if you're not strategic about it, then you might, you might just be spinning yourself into a hole or, or, or working yourself into burnout. And Chip brought the strategy and the vision and really um, leveraged his self and, and mentored himself into the people he worked with to build a healthy culture of staff as it was exploding through the through the 90s into the early aughts so that relational culture was driven more by his son and the infrastructure hard work culture was driven more by Clyde. So if you look back at you know I, I mentioned that I just interviewed Snow Trails GM Scott Chrislip and and interestingly the founder of Snow Trails David Carto also passed away recently in April, 2021. As you look, as you survey the lower Midwest, there are 11 lost areas in Ohio and only five remaining. And there are nine lost areas in Indiana and only two remaining. What both of those had in, in common, both of those areas that have survived is this committed founder who was involved until the end. How important do you think that is, Jonathan, as, as you try to operate a scary and a challenging environment in the Midwest? How important is that sort of founder-led enthusiasm and commitment and vision for it to to making a scary work in a place where it's just frankly not that easy to do it? Well, I think for all the good and the bad we inherit from from the top, and that sense of I mean they were the literal owners, and that sense of ownership that they had, if it if it failed, it could mean that they couldn't provide food for their family. So they absolutely had no option but to succeed and had to power through it. So that that ownership mentality, I can see it trickling down through the staff so that the, the areas of responsibility that are delegated have a sense of ownership that comes with it. And I think that that helps the areas tremendously succeed because if you have no sense of ownership, if you feel like you're a cog in the machine that, um, that doesn't your, your, your presence or absence would make no difference to the day to day or long-term strategy, then that you, you, a staff person could decide to just get up and go because they have no meaning or ultimate purpose. Um, that, that ownership is what, I think drives all of us to become better versions of ourselves at whatever level and coming, coming from, I don't know where you, where else you would inherit that if it didn't come from a family owned uh, from the top. I think that's, what's difficult in the corporate world when 
someone's doing a job and doesn't feel like they own that that job uh they're not really tied to to that 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 mentality trickles down negatively so you're this is still a family operation seems like uh the the perfect family is still very invested in in this and has no intentions of going anywhere just break this down for us is you've you've mentioned chip perfect several times the ceo who else in the family is is involved and what are their roles chip has four other siblings um there have been two that were very involved prior to uh they're they're all about retirement age right now uh and he is he's definitely the one who's the, the most involved as the president uh and former gm uh jill guzman his sister was uh the controller for many, many years and worked in the office and she would manage the relationship between all of the points of sale and the bank. Uh, and then Terry Feist, his sister was, had roles in the office for many years as the manager worked and managed the food service area and also managed the retail area at different points in time. It's interesting. The ski area is actually, on the family farm, is it maxed out? Is there any room to expand? I think that the low hanging the low hanging fruit has been picked in terms of real estate. That we have friendly neighbors to our east and our west, but not so friendly that they would entertain uh, selling or leasing any additional property to us. So we're, we've explored that. Of course, you stay open to those conversations, and a lot of it's a dance. I would at this moment in uh, June of 2022, I would say that I don't see an opportunity to expand the area onto those neighboring properties. We've had some of those talks um, and I respect that a hundred percent. We just got to know where where we are so we can look for where we're going. I do believe that there are are ways that we can improve our trails for the guest experience when they're here, especially knowing that we're a beginner, lower intermediate, heavy ski area. And we'll probably spend the next two to five years working on that. There are some, we can make a few things wider. We can add a, we can add a few acres here and there of snowmaking to spread people out. And of course we can't go up, unfortunately, (laughs) but, um, but I still think that there's some improvements we can, we can squeeze out before we, commit to uh, relent ourselves to plateauing in, in the physical plant. Is there any room to cut more trails within the existing footprint? Yeah, there are, there, there's some areas. Um, part of them just don't, like I said, the low hanging fruit's been picked. So we got to balance uh, looking at the, the sun angle on where, where they are. We're studying some, some places that, uh, would wrap around the over by the east side of our of our area to to uh, give a couple more acres of skiable surface. Although it doesn't, nothing would add uphill capacity for us. But it's good again. Spreading people out is a is a win, if it, especially if it gives people more variety in that green blue type ski run. So would that be the area skiers right of backstage? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's where we're that's where we're looking at exploring, and we'll we'll see if the I don't know that the fall lines would work, but if there is, there might be something that where we could come in around the jam session area and let people coming down backstage 
go off to the right and come down around jam session. How actively are you looking at that? Is that something we could see in the next couple seasons? Yeah, I think so. Um, if we can make the the fall work and the snowmaking work, then we could see something sooner than later. So one thing that's super crucial to a small hill like yours in the Midwest is terrain park. So talk a little bit about your terrain park culture and how you approach building those and maintaining them because I know they're very expensive. <laughs> they they are they are and they're not. I think that the again the most important piece of all of it is the institutional knowledge that we have in our terrain park manager uh, Andy Hall and our groomers um, Jamie Wittick is runs point on nighttime grooming and it can't be underestimated how important those two are for a casting a vision to to building what what they have in their mind to build communicating that with the rest of the team for the protection of the the risk management piece but also the execution and the commitment it takes to um, build and maintain them especially with our you know we can't do that during opening hours so they have to work after 10 p.m. on weeknights and after 12:30 on weekends in order to execute. But diesel's certainly gone up, and it's grooming hours that's the primary cost. We've we've created uh, a lot of rails and boxes that we have a, a great inventory. Some of them we have a lot in our boneyard now, so we can keep our trails fresh. And part of that's their vision, and part of it's the ability to pick and choose what what features we put out there during the winter time. Um, we have three parks. We have our addition train park that we would classify as a, as a medium train park. Our jam session progression park has two sides to it. So it has varying rollers and uh, some some features that allow the, the skiers and snowboarders to get the sensation of what it's like to be in the air for a little bit and also low to the ground rails and boxes. And when the snow conditions allow mid season we have a, a large jump terrain park in lower hollywood for two or three jumps and this past season i think it's worked really well that the terrain park team has created three jumps of similar shape and size so that somebody who has the technical skills to navigate those can hit one after the other to get multi, get the feel of each jump very similarly and learn learn what that's like and that that was a great strategy this last year that we just employed so as you mentioned you're almost maxed out as far as the potential footprint as you as you look to make the most out of what you have and you survey your lift fleet as you mentioned you have five chairlifts and even though they're not necessarily ancient they do have a lot of hours on them right because you're open so many hours a week what yeah. is your wish list jonathan for chairlift upgrades and, and what could we potentially see in the foreseeable future well, we're 42 years into to history of the ski area, and our oldest lift is, I believe, 40 years old this year. I think we ran two years on a rope toe. Um, we, we have, again, I can't sing the praises enough of our lift maintenance team because they do a great job of staying on top of, A, how they look, but also, B, how they function. And we have um, switched out the, the drive gear and kept them up to date as up to date as we can over the years but yes there's a time there's a day coming very rapidly where we're going to have to give a hard look at replacing some of these lifts and that's that's a tough man that's a tough nut to swallow because every year we're not guaranteed the a perfect winter so there's a lot of planning that goes into replacing 
cliffs. So A, yes, it's on our radar to start replacing them. How and when we do it is going to take some some finesse. But we have five chairlifts. The latest one was built in 1993, I think is the year, and uh, which, of course, time slips by way quicker than any of us would imagine. I can't believe it's going to be 30 years old next year. But um, yeah, we're, we're looking at the, in the next 10 years to be, if all of them, I don't expect to be replacing a chairlift every two years, but our, our crystal ball is potentially replacing one every three to four um, mm. until we feel like, you know, we don't want to, we want to be good stewards of the resources we have. So we don't want to limp them along, but if we can feel confident, hundred percent confident in being the ability to have the parts to get through a season, which I think is going to be the case with our, our riblets, which all of ours are. Um, if we have the parts, then we can maintain them almost indefinitely, but that's, that's not our primary strategy. What, is, what would be your priority if you had an unlimited budget? Which chair would you be looking to replace first? Ooh, unlimited budget dreams. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. If the sky were the limit, I would, uh, I would give a hard look at, Man, it would come down to, to two of them. I, I would look at the green chair, which is our in our beginner area. Uh, there's probably a way we could reposition it to open up some terrain for the beginner skier. And it would it would be great to get rid of a couple of the lift towers. And I know the newer ones are engineered to have less than the ones that we have now, just less obstacles for them to have to navigate through. I think that the other one that would be running competition is the red chair, which has the most number of hours on it just because it's the one that runs to the very top of center stage and it's a triple. And I think that we could, uh, we would look at getting a quad with a loading carpet and stick it up in that area, gain a little bit of uphill capacity, but not so much that it would affect the density, the skier density on the hill negatively. Um, those, those two might be a coin flip, but, uh, that's, that's where we would look first. And where, how would you want to reposition green as far as the base and the terminal go? I think if you were looking at a trail map, the, the base of green is, uh, is closer to the West side, kind of angled towards the West side of the, of the beginner area. And we could swing the base of the green out to the middle of between the or the bottom of the orange chair to the west and the beginner area to the east, so that you have open, even terrain on both both sides of the chair coming down. And would you be looking at a quad there as well if you were to upgrade that lift? I think that that's pr- that's probably uh, the best financial choice. The, it doesn't seem like I think we would do a study for a winter or two before we did that to make sure that the again the ski the the hill capacity and the skier density is not too high on the beginner area but i believe that we have room um without again negatively impacting lessons in the beginner experience by increasing that uphill capacity on that lift by 33 percent is i know you're always have to keep in mind you don't want to overload the hill but is there anywhere else on perfect north where you would like to add a chairlift who well on on the land proper we were tapped out to the top so um, there there is a case to looking at the west hill the orange chair services are far side ski run 
Um, on the really busy days, if you watch the crowd, it'd be great to have a second lift that goes up to the top because it's probably our most popular lift, being the only one that services the West Hills. That said, a second lift to the top, if it only doubled the number of skiers and riders who came down far side, would not be um, it would not it wouldn't be wise to increase the density by two, a factor of two on that run. And we'd have to do a hard soul search to see if, if what's, you know, talk to the people who are using that lift, talk to the people who aren't. Um, is it a beginner factory that just wants that intermediate run and the more advanced skiers stay off the, stay off that lift because the lines are too long. If we were to um, lessen the lines, it's possible we could get the, intermediates and advanced to ski the intermediate and advanced runs but if if we were just to solely double up far side we we couldn't do it so it's uh if you look over at the jam session terrain park it's really interesting you have two rope toes over there and this is a great tool to keep the park kids in their own zone and and keep the lift lines down a little bit i'm curious if you've considered throwing some rope toes up at Hollywood or audition. I know you have the blue chair there serving audition, but is this a tool you've considered deploying elsewhere on the mountain to take some pressure off the chairlifts and just give the park folks an opportunity to lap those features like they want to? Great question. Uh, no, we haven't, we haven't run a lap on rope toes up lower Hollywood. Um, I don't know if that's just the, uh, the, the steepness of the terrain. Um, I've, we, in our experience, the terrain uh, hillside, it, you can get to a point where it's uh, prohibitive to use a rope toe. However, we have experienced, we've gone to the Terrain Park Summit in the Midwest, which is a fantastic program okay. run by the MSAA and supported by National, and seen some uh, well-executed, well-placed, high-speed rope toes uh, in areas that have opened up our perspective on that. So... A, right now we're looking at updating our rope toes and jam session. And as we do that and we see what's available, we'll, we'll get a better feel for what industry good, what practices are for what kind of, what kind of terrain we could be looking at for use on those. One of the benefits of having it lift served is that it is a little less accessible. It is, it does take a little bit more time between laps and that that's, welcomed from a risk management perspective, especially when that's our, our largest jumps on the site. There's a little bit of a strategy in not encouraging lots of laps and, and wearing people out on those big jumps. So yeah, something we would watch and consider and research, but not currently in the plans. So it looks like you've moved away from rope toes for the beginner experience. If my count is correct, you have five carpet lifts in your beginning area, that's one of the largest networks, and, and it may be the largest concentration of carpet lifts that I'm aware of anywhere, because some ski areas have that many, but they're spread out among many base areas, for example. Just talk about that little network of carpet lifts you have and how important that is to your business. Oh, the carpets are game changers. We used to have rope toes. We used to have four rope toes serving that area. It was oriented different. Um, but again, it, for people who aren't used to the skiing experience, Rope toes were a very negative aspect of getting introduced to this beginner terrain. They'd burn up. They wouldn't know how to interface with it. They'd fall down a lot. There was a 
very low rate of success. You'd burn up your gloves. So getting rid of those was revolutionary for us. And we we started off with two and then added a third. And then we ended up expanding our beginner terrain to accommodate more weekend group lessons and added the, the two the carpets, number four and five, to, to our mix. But they have been game-changing because everybody can use them. It's intuitive. There's types of equipment out there in the world, like in airports, that people are used to engaging with. And for the most part, they they do take some some love, but... Uh, they, and they can they can ice up, but they've come a long way in the last twenty years, and uh, the new ones are fantastic. Do you think you're maxed out? Is there room for any more? I don't know that we're maxed out. Our beginner our beginner terrain is definitely maxed out. There there could be part of it is just about moving people. As we look at at the beginner area in the green chair, there could be an area over in between green and orange that could do well. Be be served well by another carpet lift. Um, part of that is a conversation that we're going to have this fall with our ski instructors and and see what ideas they have to improve the beginner experience. And if that's not too far for them to uh, take a lesson, then we could. that would be the one place I think an additional carpet would help us, uh, help us spread people out. So as I pivot across your hill... I see a just enormous snow tubing hill, and I don't usually talk about snow tubing on this podcast, but I wanted to mention it because I read the SMI case study of Perfect North, and they mentioned that you serve up to 100,000 people annually on the snow tubing hill. You mentioned the passion that your locals have for that hill earlier. So just tell us about that massive snow tubing operation. It looks like you have a couple dozen lanes, but but just break it down for us. What What's over there and, and how, how important is that piece of the hill to you? Yeah, there's two uh, carpet served lifts over there for tubing. On our best days, we have 24 lanes of tubing. And those visits represent about a third of our overall visits. And a lot of those people, as much as we've tried to get them to cross over and come try skiing or riding, we've embraced that that's just a market of its own where that's the, the, you don't, it's like an, it's more like an amusement ride because, and, and that's the other interesting thing. It's just different skiing and snowboarding are a sport and you're in control. Snow tubing is an amusement where you get up and you, sit down and gravity is in control you have to be on higher alert with how we interact with with people who've never been on snow before but it is such a fun opportunity and it's a great way it's another family-friendly event it's a great way to get people outside and when the sun's out uh, and there's no snow in their backyards there's so many people hooting and hollering over at you <laughs> all right jonathan let's shift gears here and talk about timberline in 2019, as you mentioned, the Perfect Family purchased the shuttered Timberline ski area in West Virginia. It had been closed for a few years. They put a ton of money into it. Really, really exciting to see this thing back online. But talk about Timberline. Break this down for us. Why did they buy it and how did you make it happen? You know, that Chip is a serial entrepreneur and he's he's been looking for opportunities, uh, potential opportunities in the ski industry for a while. And that was on his radar that there was a, uh, a family 
that with potentially aging ownership that might potentially be looking to get out. And I think he's, he drove past it a couple of times. I, I visited it like many other ski areas just to experience what the industry was like, but there was a, a phone call, text message, voicemail that he received in July of 2019 from a very engaged concern owner that in February of 19, the ownership, the then current ownership had fallen behind on their taxes and the feds shut them down and it was going into the, the bankruptcy path. And he reached out saying there was opportunity and got his chip's name from somewhere that he might be interested well, Chip uh, is our Indiana state senator and super busy year-round, um, fully engaged, but invited me to chase that lead, and I did. Uh, and as it went down, we talked back and forth about the opportunity that could be. We took a visit on site, walked it. Um, there's a lot of things that were fantastic from stepping foot on that property with a thousand foot hill it's just an absolute gem in the middle of nowhere west virginia but for as many pros there were cons and there was some a lot of soul searching but we decided that it bought right that would be a great opportunity because we have the captive ears we, i think we're up to 140,000 good email addresses in our mailing list and we can directly help influence seasonal trips from people in this region to go there so we can drive business not just um rely on it to be organic so we went to the bankruptcy in, in november of 2019 and decided to low bid it this is all public information so we started at one and a half million decided that um Two million was going to be our top offer because we knew that it was going to take a lot of capital to bring it up to where it needed to be to do it justice. Um, had a hard phone call with Chip after we crossed the two million mark, and he said, "Go, go one more increment," and uh, was outbid at two point two million. And I was really disappointed personally. I felt like I was in Philadelphia. I'd not gone to proceedings like this, dealing with lawyers. Felt like I'd failed. Um, but also felt like we, we walked the path as far as we could go. And that night, I just felt compelled to dress up the next day and go to court and have our voice registered that we were number two. Should anything happen, should the guy who had won the bid not be able to finance it or purchase it, or he gives it up just to be there. And it turns out that the creditors were very unhappy with a person who won the bid who had no experience in the industry and they rejected were going to reject his bid sending it into chapter seven bankruptcy which i think would have fractured the ski area up and i don't think humpty dumpty would have ever been put back together again <laughs> so um they encouraged me to do a hall hallway handshake deal with this guy and he wanted a tremendous amount of money to purchase the bid from him, and which we didn't have. And we negotiated it down to something reasonable, ended up with the keys that afternoon. And uh, I called Chip up and I said, this is a lot of people are following this closely. I'm getting on a plane to come home and it's going to hit while I'm on the plane. So you guys have to get the messaging out of what has happened. And sure enough, the, the ball was rolling from there. And, and that was the beginning of a, a new, exciting chapter in Perfect North Slope's history. So for those who aren't familiar with this mountain, 
Timberline is a really nice chunk of real estate. West Virginia is it's a little bit of the forgotten state. It's right in the middle of the country, but it has elevation. So Timberline has a thousand vertical feet. It gets up to 200 inches of snow in a year. It's actually right next door to Cannon Valley, another longtime ski area. And, and in between is a, a really big backcountry stretch. So it's it's this sort of unexpected, rich ski region. You immediately dropped a detached six pack to the summit, a brand new fixed grip quad just through, a, as you said, it was going to require a lot of capex. So it, I, I a, a detached six pack. I don't know what you paid for it, but it was more than two million. I, I can I can guess that. So so you put a ton of money into it. That was you know opening in twenty twenty, as you said. How has it gone so far? This renaissance of Timberline. What kind of reception are you seeing? Uh, it's. I feel like we're still in the honeymoon phase because everybody is so well. The the, the state, the community, the. the 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 region is so welcoming and so excited that we're there it's been a really healthy relationship for all parties it feels like a win-win-win all the way around it didn't feel that way at first because stepping on site after after having the keys thinking we're really good at snowmaking and maintaining our equipment we've it didn't take long for us to realize that the three lifts that were on site were completely uh unworkable we could not we didn't feel comfortable putting maintenance back in them to get them up to shape. They, they had to be ripped out. And that was, there was a lot of heartburn over those decisions. But with them, once we got over, the, I guess, the denial of how bad the outlook could have possibly been, the opportunity that lied ahead, like the first six-pack, high-speed detachable six in West Virginia would get a lot of attention. And it would also usher in a much quicker renaissance, as you will, of the area. And uh, we have seen with this past, for example, at Perfect North Slopes, we saw a small decline from the 2020 crowds, which is which was okay. Um, <laughs> this past year, we're still seeing double-digit percentage growth at Timberline, and I, I forecast that to continue for at least three or four more years as more people get out. And just with the past sale, early past sales number, we're still gaining momentum there. So it's been so fantastic to get to learn and work with the, the people of West Virginia. And um, that, man, that mountain is a gem. You said that that whole terrain is so unique. It's, it reminds me of a, like Southern Vermont. It's got the elevation to hold the snow. It's higher in elevation than Vermont by about 1500 feet. But because it's, it's more southerly, the, um, you know, of course it takes, it, it takes a little bit more to get the snow, but you can't beat 150, 200 inches a year. And it's, um, it's the highest valley uh, east of the Mississippi. And it's got more terrain above 4,000 feet in that region than New York, Vermont, and Maine combined, is one of the, one of the locals told me. So yeah, I, it's, it's a gem. We, we love developing it. And I think we're going to have fun continuing to improve it for the next 10 or 15 years. Yeah, so th- th- this is not Indiana, and for the for the listeners who are not familiar with West Virginia or West Virginia ski culture, you mentioned that you were working on developing that sort of ski town mentality around Cincinnati. Talk about what you found in West Virginia. Talk about the ski culture there and how it's different. Yeah, they had it built in. Like they, Davis, West Virginia, is a ski town, and Thomas up the road from it embraces the ski mentality. 
And a lot of it has to do with our partner down there. I say partner, but a partner in crime in the ski industry, Canaan <laughs> Valley is state run, but um, that we, we, they're eight miles away. We love working with them and, and the culture that they help have fostered. And there's a tremendous number of vacation homes. I think there's seven to 800 plus that surround Timberline Mountain proper. So the, that ski culture is baked into that small community and they've been so excited and welcoming. And so anything we can do to be supportive of the community, the community is supportive of us. And it feels like this dynamo that's just, just starting to gain steam. And I'm seeing a lot of reinvestment in properties and infrastructure that look like had been not maintained or put off for many years, but there's new faith and energy in that community. And I can't wait to see what's what's coming in the next decade. So you're about six and a half hours apart, Perfect North and Timberline. Have you seen synergy between them? Do you have Perfect North pass holders who are excited by this idea that their local ski area owners also have this place out in the mountains and, and do they travel out there? Have you seen that? Yes, we do. Um, of course, we, we nudge, we don't push them, but we nudge them. We give them some opportunities. Although we're, we haven't created a pass that's good at both places yet we and we we struggled through that timberline mountain has got to stand on its own financially and um giving away or adding a pass add-on in one one location or the other didn't seem like the right model but we did find that at least for the first couple of years giving pass holders half off at the alternative ski area when they visit has been successful um I don't know if those visits would have happened organically anyway. I don't know that they expect any more because they know that we, we did spend a lot of money uh, and it does cost a lot to run a ski area, especially with, with the snowmaking systems that had to be revamped as well. But that model's working and we're, we're pushing the day ticket areas that once they're out of the beginner zone at Perfect North Slopes and they want to take their skiing to the next level where they're entertaining a, a trip, being six, six and a half hours away from our from our main market is really appealing that you don't have to purchase an airline ticket and and go there. We're finding that the limiting factor at Timberline Mountain right now is beds. And when the valley is full, uh, when all the beds are full, the hotels are full, the, the Airbnbs, that's about the capacity that we're that we're hitting. But as time goes on, I think we'll get more people traveling from Cincinnati if they can find the bed space and be the DC folks will find that it's a legitimate day area. So it sounds like you're fairly happy with this experiment so far. Do you think there's a future where the perfect family purchases more ski areas? I would say that the appetite is there and the team is available, ready, willing, and able. Um, it comes down to opportunity. Um, if I hate to see ski areas wither up and die because invariably that's a little piece of the soul of the industry that's going away too. And the, if the location is right and the terms and the conditions and the price is right, I would absolutely say that we would entertain looking at that. Of course, that's that's a, a family call. And when, when the uh, perfect family, if they have, if they still have the appetite, when, or if the next opportunity comes along, I know that they'll give it a hard look because the first is always the hardest. Starting up the first ski area was, was challenging and they learned a lot. So we built all those efficiencies into winding up the first expansion 
of you know geographically going somewhere else now we have a model of what it looks like to go with you know to get outside of our our box and i think we could do another one even more efficiently all right let's uh let's wrap up here today jonathan with a talk about your season passes at perfect north you you have a whole bunch of different options the unlimited pass is 356 dollars um, also includes tubing, which I, I thought was really interesting. You have some other really creative options. You have a once a week pass. You have a Monday through Thursday pass. Just talk about your approach to season passes and and how you set up this varied suite. And I'm also curious if if going back to the crowding issues that you mentioned, if you are limiting the number of these products that you sell these days. So to to begin with the capacity question, we're. Um, we're keeping our finger on that pulse because we do not want to have a repeat of what happened in 2020, 2021 with clogging up the highway. And that's just not a great experience. We want people to have a value experience, but that if there's too many people here, that that takes away from it, regardless of the price. So pass holders uh, get a great deal with purchasing a pass, being able to come the entire season on those various flavors. And I think that it, even the proximity of a ski area that what drives the, our guests visits are their availability and it's it's the competition with their schedule so in 2020 2021 there was so little to compete with what there was no concerts no fast food places open up and nothing was happening so outdoor recreation was number one um i believe that's why we saw a decline this past year and again that was welcome to take some of the pressure off and as much as we've tried pushing people to weekdays or weeknights uh has been successful in its own right but we haven't i don't think we've found the secret sauce to that we're still after that holy grail i don't know that the industry has found it i don't know how destinations would even begin to tackle that but our flavors of passes can attract the proximate skiers and snowboarders, and especially our youth, our highest demographic is um, the high school student and then the parents with young kids. But we encourage, and with our through our pricing, various levels. There's the anytime, any day pass with our gold pass. We have a higher version of that, this direct lift that you wear around your neck as the perfect pass, our silver pass. We've chopped off the peak times of Saturday all day and Sunday daytime leaving sunday night on it and then all the other days are included and then the bronze chops off sunday night and friday so it's a monday through thursday which is really convenient for a lot of folks and we have a lot of uh like i said 20 percent of our past holders are school programs that purchase the four visit club pass and seen a lot of success in that, especially because it drives weekday visits. But we're seeing pass holder numbers increase. And yes, we want to keep a finger on that pulse. But I think that where a, a, somebody purchasing a lift ticket at full price, they want to stay all day to get their highest value. A pass holder could come early for a few hours. And when the lines build and they feel like they don't want to stay in a 15 minute lift line, they can bail and come back another day and still get their value. So it's, it sounds like you've, you've built a really great, very thoughtful pass suite and, and you're tiptoeing into the idea of, or the notion of a combo pass with discounts. I'm curious if you've considered joining the Indy pass as, as this takes hold across the country and grants independent scarias, a uh, national marketing coalition to be a part of your neighbor in West Virginia 
Canaan Valley is part of this pass and has been since the beginning. Just curious if you've had those talks or if you've thought about the Indy Pass at all. Yeah, I saw Doug Fish at the National Convention just a, a few weeks ago. We talked about that. I think he's got a great model, and I love that he's so passionate about driving skier visits and supporting independent ski areas. I can't poke significant holes in it. I think we have to run what we got to do. We've got to be careful to not, we can't encourage peak time visit visits for discounts. And although I don't want to discourage people from trying skiing or snowboarding, we're very strategic about what happens on Saturdays, frankly. And if we could do something that would help uh, drive visits all the rest of the, if that were something we could show, that would drive visits during the week, even on Sunday nights, then th- those are the kind of things we're looking at. But yes, we, we're talking with Doug. I think he's got a great thing going, and I wouldn't be surprised that if we followed that path, we might that might be something that we would look at with Timberline before Perfect North Slopes. Hmm. But uh, yeah, we're looking at the numbers right now. Interesting. All right, Jonathan. Well, I it was really fascinating talking lower Midwest skiing. It's it's I'm I'm really impressed with the operators down there because you're dealing with just a very unique set of uh, set of weather and demographic challenges. And I think you really killed it this year. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk with me. And I think everyone else will love hearing your story too. So thank you very much. And, and I hope that uh, I hope you do great at Timberline and, and continue to thrive at Perfect North. Thanks, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Always love talking ski industry stuff with whoever will listen. So uh, we'll welcome you and anybody else who uh, has never been to Perfect North or Timberline to give us a try this winter. That's Jonathan Davis, general manager of Perfect North, Indiana. That was really impressive. That is a very sharp dude. And you can understand how Perfect North outmaneuvered Vail so badly this past season. Timberline skiers, you have got to feel good knowing that group is in charge of your future. They are going to make that thing work for the long term, and they are going to make Timberline better. Thank you very much for that, Jonathan, and thank you all for listening. That is your last podcast for June. Wow, six in one month. I will speak for myself and say I think I overdid it. That was fun, but we are going to slow it down now until fall. I've still got some good ones for you in July, including conversations with the general managers of Gore Mountain and Bogus Basin, and another little Midwest gem, Mulligan's Hollow in Michigan. And I will have Mount Hood Meadows in August. That though, will probably do it until September. I have lots planned for the fall and you never know when I'll slide another one in there. Remember, to get those podcasts as soon as they're live, sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.